Thinking back to when I began in this church, you know, you're, you, the day that they vote on you as pastor, the sermon you preach ought to say something about where you would like the church to go, what you would like the church to become or what, what the church to be. The title for my sermon on the day that you voted me as your lead pastor, which was April the 1st, 2000, April Fool's Day on you, the, the, the title was A Great Commandment Church and a Great Commission Church. First sermons are very important. Today we're going to look at the first Christian sermon. The first sermon that was preached after the, on the day of Pentecost, the first Christian sermon preached. It was on that day the Holy Spirit came to indwell 120 believers in the upper room. It was on that day that Peter preached his first sermon as a Christian man. And what you see in the passage that Abby read to us is this, Christianity is Christ. W. Griffith Thomas wrote a book in 1917 entitled Christianity excuse me, is Christ. And as we work our way through this passage, I want you to notice over and over again, he talks about Jesus. He talks about Jesus, the man, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus, the salvation of Jesus. Everything in Christianity finds its ultimate value and source in Jesus Christ. Notice with me in verse 22, he begins with Jesus' life. And he points to the fact that Jesus was a man attested by God. Jesus was a man, but he was more than a man. The evidence that Jesus was more than a man was the miracles, the wonders, and the signs that he performed. Almost any man can be an excellent communicator. Maybe not with the impact and the influence that Jesus had, but throughout the ages there have been many, many skilled rhetorical people. But Jesus was a man attested by God, not only by what he said, but by what he did. The word signs, for instance, that's the word that the apostle John uses for miracles. John doesn't describe Jesus performing miracles. He describes Jesus performing signs. Now, when I could drive and see the signs... Uh, I was able to be directed by the signs, how fast to drive, uh, when, when, uh, when I needed to make a change on, on a particular interstate. A sign points us in a particular direction. Well, in, in John chapter 2, Jesus turned 175 gallons of water into wine. No man could do that. In John chapter 4, Jesus healed a little boy who was on the precipice of death He didn't see the boy, speak to the boy, or touch the boy. He thought the thought, and the boy was healed, although the boy was almost 20 miles away. In John chapter 5, Jesus looked at a man that had been paralyzed for 38 years, probably living essentially in filth and squalor like most paralytics did. He was by the pool of Bethesda. Jesus spoke a single word of power, get up, and the man's strength in his legs were restored and the man stood up. No ordinary human being could do that. In John chapter 6, Jesus was confronted by thousands and thousands of people, 5,000 men, not counting women and children. They didn't have enough to feed them. 
But rather than sending the crowds away, he took a couple pieces of bread, a couple of fish. He prayed over them, multiplied them so that the entire, the entire group was fed, and they had 12 basketfuls of leftovers. No ordinary man could do that. He sent the disciples away, and then he came to them by walking on the water. Moses parted the Red Sea. He walked on dry ground between, between a parted sea, but Jesus Christ walked on the water. No ordinary man can do that. In John chapter 9, just a couple of pages over from John chapter 6, Jesus heals a blind man. And the blind man, speaking to the religious leaders, says, never in the history of the world is it ever been heard that a person born blind received their sight. And Jesus healed that blind man. No ordinary man can do that. And then in John chapter 11, after four days in the tomb, the body of Lazarus already decomposing, Jesus stands in front of that tomb, has them remove the stone. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Not only was Lazarus resuscitated, resurrected from the dead, but his decomposing body was recomposed. No ordinary man can do that. If they had any doubts about who Jesus was, they should have seen what Jesus did. But the human heart is hard, callous, and indifferent to the ways of God. We are spiritually blind, spiritually enslaved, spiritually condemned. Although Jesus performed unbelievable miracles, well, I want you to notice he moves from his life to his death. They, they nailed him to a cross. In fact, Peter says, you nailed him to a cross in verse 23. He moves from the miracles of Jesus to the death of Jesus. Interestingly enough, notice that not only was Jesus' death at, by the hands of wicked men, it also was in perfect conformity to the plan of God. He says, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. It was God's plan and man's wickedness that culminated in Christ's crucifixion. But why? Why would you kill a man who could do what Jesus did? Feed the hungry, raise the dead, heal the sick, give sight to the blind. Psalm chapter 14 Verses 2 and 3 say this, The Lord had looked down from heaven upon the sons of mankind to see if there was, if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. Together they are corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, that's kind of a depressing assessment of humanity. Interestingly enough, in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, Paul strings together a series of verses making the same point, and he uses this very psalm, these very words, as a part of his assessment. There's no one who's good enough to be right with God in their own good deeds. There's no one who can do enough good deeds. 
to overcome the sin that they've committed. To commit a single sin, James says, is to, co- is to commit every sin in one sense. The great prophet Jeremiah, which Dr. Betts is teaching on Wednesday nights here, had this to say, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So God looks from heaven, and He tried to find one person, a single person, any person who was in a right relationship with Him, and He couldn't find one. There was no, not one. That's what the psalmist says, and that's what Paul affirmed. But in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul in verse 6 and 9 had this to say, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for good people because there's no good people, no good people in right standing with God. Now, there are people who do good things, but no person in the core of their being is right with God, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Paul's assessment. And so when Jesus died, He died for helpless people like you and me. He died for people that deserved eternal wrath like you and me. We were helpless. We were undone. There was absolutely nothing we could possibly do to save ourselves. But Christ died for the ungodly because there was no godly people for him to die for. Paul goes on to write, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So he begins with Jesus' miracles, his life. He quickly transitions to Jesus' death. He's driving home the point with every strike of the hammer on the head of the nail. Christianity is Jesus. Jesus is Christianity. He moves quickly from death to resurrection. He gives one work, one verse to the miracles of Jesus, one verse to the death of Jesus, but beginning in verse 24, going all the way through verse 32, he focuses on the resurrection of Jesus. And he wants us to understand that this resurrection was not something that they should have not been prepared for. The Old Testament prophesied of it. And Jesus and the apostles testified to it. Notice in verse 24 the adversative particle, the little word translated but. You nailed him to a tree, you killed him, is what Peter is saying, but God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead, putting to death the power of death. God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, as we will see in just a moment. But what Peter does to affirm what he's just said, that God raised him from the dead, notice that's exactly what he says in verse 24, he turns to Scripture. He turns to their Bible. We call it the Old Testament. He calls it his Bible. It's the Scriptures. We just read from Psalm 14. Now he turns to Psalm 16. He ascribes Psalm 16 to David. He helps us understand David wrote this psalm. But they thought David wrote the psalm about himself. First century Jews in that particular time thought that David was speaking about himself. But David wasn't speaking about himself. David was speaking prophetically. He saw in a mirror dimly, saw through the window 
dimly. The future was a little bit clouded, but David knew that he wasn't speaking about himself. He was speaking about one who was to come. Because in verse 29, you'll notice that that Peter interprets it for us. If we had any doubt about how we're to understand it, any doubt about how we're to interpret it, any doubt as to who the subject of the psalm is, particularly this passage, Peter says, Brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Well, he says in the, in the psalm that his body would not undergo decay. Look in verse 27. Nor will you allow your holy one to undergo decay. But if they were to find David's tomb, they would find bones. If they had found it not long after David died, they would have found a decomposing corpse. David died, was buried, and his body rotted away. But David was talking about one who died and whose body did not undergo decay. And Peter quotes Psalm 16 to point to Jesus. If that isn't enough, he then gives apostolic testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. The Scriptures prophesied Jesus' resurrection. The disciples attested to Jesus' resurrection. Notice the word so that begins verse 30. And he begins to describe how they saw the resurrected Christ. Notice in verse 32, it is this Jesus, which Jesus? The miraculous Jesus, the crucified Jesus. It is this Jesus whom God raised up, a fact to which we are all witnesses. So Scripture affirms the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and apostolic testimony attests to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But some may say, well, the disciples, the disciples made it all up. It's just a hoax. Uh, they, they manipulated circumstances by stealing Jesus' body in order to gain political power and religious, uh, and religious influence. Although that is a, a, a rather common liberal suggestion, it's absolutely stupid. To steal the body and then to try and gain religious influence and financial and, and political power would demonstrate they were not very smart because they gained neither. They neither were very politically powerful among the Jews and they definitely were not politically powerful among, among the Romans. And when you read the New Testament, you discover in the book of Acts and in the writings of Paul, rather than being princes, they were more like paupers. Rather than being financially successful, they, were, they, they bordered on indigence. So if they made the whole thing up, it just collapsed in on them. Furthermore, why would you tell a lie and then die for that lie? Now, Anybody who believes a false religion and genuinely believes it would be willing to die for it. 
It, it may not be a true religion. It may not be Christianity. It may be any, any world religion, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, any, other, any of the other great world religions. And if a person genuinely, authentically believes it, they would be willing to die for it, but they'd be dying for a lie. People will die for a lie if they believe the lie to be true, but nobody will die for a lie that they know to be a lie. Why would Paul allow himself to be decapitated for something that he knew wasn't true? Why would Peter allow himself to be crucified if he would merely renounce the fact that Jesus was a lie? Why would he allow himself to be crucified if he knew it to be a lie? Why would James, the brother of John, be willing to die in the book of Acts for something he knew was a lie? Why would Stephen, the, 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 the first Christian martyr, if he knew Jesus' body had been stolen from the grave, if he knew that Jesus wasn't a lie, why was he willing to die for Jesus? No one will die for a lie. Some have thought, well, maybe they just were seeing hallucinations. You know, sometimes after a person, person loses a loved one, they may be in a crowd and they see off in the distance that they've lost a son. And they catch out of the corner of their eye across the mall someone that, that looks like Bill. And just for a second, it's almost like your heart skips a beat. And then they turn and you realize, that's not Bill, he's dead. Well, what some scholars suggest is that it was mere hallucination, something like that. It, 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 Jesus was ethereal, he was spiritual, he was mythical, he, it, wasn't, it wasn't bodily raised from the dead. Let me ask this, how many people does it take having the same kind of vision? How many people can have the same kind of vision? Paul says Jesus appeared at one time to 500 people. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 500 people don't have the same hallucination. No, Jesus was raised bodily from the grave. His flesh did not suffer decay. The Scriptures prophesied it, and the apostles affirmed it. He says again in verse 32, it is this Jesus whom God raised up, a fact to which we are all witnesses. Now, this is Peter. This is the first Christian sermon. This is immediately after he has been indwelt by the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. No longer an Old Testament saint, but a new covenant believer. And he moves from Jesus' resurrection to Jesus' exaltation. But notice once again that he spends more time on the resurrection than he does on the miracles. You would not get that out of many TV preachers. He hits very hard the death of Jesus, but he focuses in on the resurrection of Jesus because without the resurrection, then Jesus was a smart man, a phenomenal preacher, maybe even a worker of miracles, but he was not a savior. The bodily resurrection from the dead is God's affirmation. It's God's verification that Jesus accomplished the mission God sent him to accomplish. So he moves to the exaltation of Jesus. He moves to the fact that Jesus was exalted to God's right hand. Look in verse 33, therefore, in light of the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, 
since he has been exalted to the right hand of God, he's at the place of prominence, the place of authority, the seat of sovereignty, and has received the, pro- and has received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father. He has poured out this which you both see and hear. Notice not just a few little raindrops, not just a, a brief shower. He has poured it out. Think of Niagara Falls with all of its glory, all of its power, all of its splendor, and then magnify it in a way that goes beyond maybe more than we could ever comprehend, and that's God's Holy Spirit being poured out on God's people. And just to be clear, in verse 34, he says, "'For it was not David who ascended to heaven,' But he himself says, now he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. This verse is quoted more often in the New Testament than any other Old Testament verse. Jesus himself quoted it in the last week of his life. The Apostle Paul quoted it. The author of Hebrews quoted it. Peter here quotes it. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, no other Jesus, but this Jesus, whom you crucified, you killed him, God raised him from the dead, he's been exalted to God's right hand, he sits in the place of sovereign authority, he is Christianity, and he is the center of Christians' lives. Everything revolves around Him. All of our hopes and dreams and aspirations are tied up in Him. Everything that we have that's good and wholesome and a blessing comes from Him. And He has poured out His Holy Spirit on us. We are indwelt by His Spirit. We're clothed in His righteousness. Everything good comes from Him. When the tide of humanity turns against us, when everything seems to be in opposition to us. We need to be reminded by the fact the one that we love, the one that has saved us, the one that we worship, the one that we live for, sits at God's right hand. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he has a plan in which he will consummate history by his second coming and establish for himself an eternal kingdom of which everyone who knows Him as Lord and Savior will be a part of that eternal kingdom. So the Spirit of God is working. The Spirit of God is convicting. And so they cry out, what must we do to be saved? No more important question in all of human history. I've I've transposed it just a little bit. What must you do to be saved? Well, there are certain gospel commands, and with those gospel commands come certain promises. Notice in verse 37, they, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. All of a sudden, their religiosity was shaken to its core. They realized all of the sacrifices that they had made, all of the things that they had done, did not make them right with God that God had sent His Son to die for the salvation of sinners. They came under deep conviction of sin. They realized there's something wrong with me. Not that they were committing adultery, not that they were alcoholics, not that they were engaged in, in thievery, 
But there was something wrong with them. They were not right with God. They couldn't stand before God in a right relationship with Him. Now that Jesus Christ had come, died, been raised, and exalted to God's right hand. Brothers, what are we to do in verse 37? There has to be the gospel response. You, you, you just don't become a Christian like, like mold perpetuates on a piece of bread. You don't just drift into Christianity. There is a decisive decision that is made for Christ, and it is the result of Christ's work in a person. So Peter says, repent. Change the way that you think about Christ. Think, change the way you think about the world. Change the way about what's important to you. Repent. In chapel on Tuesday, I'm going to, I'm going to summarize the message of Jesus. Repent and believe the gospel. That was Jesus' message. Repent and believe the gospel. Sometimes it just says repent. Sometimes it just says believe, but they're two sides of the same coin. Repentance and faith, where there is genuine heartfelt repentance, there is genuine authentic faith. And where there is genuine authentic faith, there is genuine authentic repentance. And so he says, repent. Look with me in verse 41. So then those who had received the word were baptized. So they received the word, they repent of their sins, and they demonstrate it by baptism. Baptism doesn't save us, but baptism is absolutely important as the first step of evidence that a person has been saved by the grace of God. To be an unbaptized believer is to be stumbling around a little bit. If a person has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they move from salvation to baptism. Baptism is a public affirmation. It's a public confession. I'm putting my confidence and faith in Jesus and Jesus alone for my salvation. So repentance and faith are evidenced by baptism. Brothers, what must we do? Repent. Uh, in chapter 16, a very similar statement is made only by a Roman jailer to the Apostle Paul. What must I do to be saved? Paul could have said, climb the highest mountain, swim the deepest sea, traverse the darkest jungle. But he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Notice he doesn't mention repentance there. He doesn't mention believe here, but the two are two sides of the same coin. To talk about repentance is to talk about faith. To talk about faith is to talk about repentance. So Paul says to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't believe in God. Don't believe in your baptism. Don't believe in the church. Don't believe in your parents' faith. Believe in God. Trust in Jesus, this Jesus the Jesus that lived, the Jesus that died, the Jesus that was raised from the dead, the Jesus that was ascended to the right hand of God. Christianity is Christ, and there is no Christianity without Christ. And we have not Christianity if we have not Christ. That's the point that he's making. But then he gives the gospel promises. Forgiveness of sin, 
and the gift of the Spirit. Notice in verse 38, the forgiveness of your sins, all of your sins, every sin you have ever committed or will commit. They are wiped away. The slate is clean and replaced with a record of perfect righteousness. The righteousness of Christ becomes your righteousness. His life is, is, is placed on your account and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the good news is the promise is for you and your children and anyone, no matter how near or who, how far away, who will call upon the name of God. So he concludes by saying, be saved from this perverse generation. What he said on that day has been true throughout the ages. The world, the fallen world, has been perverse and distorted since the fall. And there's only one name that's been given among men whereby we must be saved. That's the name of Jesus. So look in verse 41. So then, in light of all of this, he says, those who have received this word were baptized that day. There were added about 3,000 souls. What were they added to? They were added to the church. There's no such thing as a churchless Christian. Now, there are people in military duty who cannot regularly attend church. There are people who are, who are, who are infirmed who are not able to attend church. There are people who, who are sick who cannot attend church. But mark my words, a churchless Christian is likely not a Christian at all because the Lord adds to the church, the Lord adds to the people of God. We're added to the church universal, but the universal church has particular manifestations, the local church. Well, I, I, just, can't, I, just, can't, I just can't take the church. The church is filled with hypocrites. Well, you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. You don't do everything you say you're going to do. You don't live, every, live perfectly the way you're supposed to live. Of course the church has hypocrites in it. Jesus saves hypocrites. And we're all in the process of being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. There's no perfect church because there's no perfect people. But to not love the church, to not love the church is not to love Jesus. Because the church is Jesus' bride. Tell me you don't like my wife, I've got a problem with you. First, I can't imagine it. Secondly, there's something wrong with you because I, I know her. A person who says they love Jesus but doesn't love the church doesn't love Jesus because Jesus is the church. It's his body. It's his bride. He fills it with his spirit. And so here we are today on I Love My Church Sunday, and if you're looking for a church, we're looking for you. I love my church. I think you would love it too. You might like to, after we sing a final song, get your kids, stop at one of our connection tables. If you're a guest, let us, let us give you a wristband for a free lunch, free dessert. But we'd love to talk with you about our church if you have questions. But you might have bigger questions than about our church. You may have genuine, authentic questions about your salvation. 
We've got people that will talk with you, will talk with you privately, confidentially. We would never stand in a, in a lobby and ask you and talk to you and pray for you in a, in a way that would embarrass you. We'll talk with you privately and, and confidentially if you'll stop by one of those tables. I'm going to ask you if you'll stand. Let me lead us in a word of prayer, and then we'll sing together one final song. And then, as I mentioned, not just for our guests, but for our members, if you'll get your kids before you go, go through the meal, the people in the preschool will be very grateful for that. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the very first Christian sermon, that it was a Jesus-centered sermon, a Jesus-focused sermon, a sermon that pointed us to the Word of God in, in Psalm 16, Psalm 110, a sermon that reminded us of the apostolic testimony the apostles were witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. It reminds us that you save us to be a part of your body. Your body is the church. To love you is to love your people. Work in our hearts as we sing now in Jesus' name. Amen.